of God's word, and I hope that you do. Please take it and turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, where this morning we're going to focus on verses 1 to 18. John 5, 1 to 18. And as you're turning there, I'll ask you to follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask God to bless now our time in his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray for illumination now that you would please open our eyes by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our minds, and that you would please soften our hearts to believe to obey and to apply what it is that you have revealed in your word that is true concerning Jesus Christ and true concerning us in him. We pray, Father, for your word to not return void today. We pray that on the authority of the word itself, because you have promised that every time your word goes forth, it accomplishes the very purpose for which you send it. And so we ask, God, that you would be faithful today to your word, that you would bear fruit among us, pray that you would keep me from error. I pray that you would grant your saints discernment. I pray that all of us, Father, would hold fast to the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to sum up the passage today in one word, superiority would be a good choice. Superiority. This text highlights the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is superior to superstitious, quasi-religious beliefs that don't do anyone good. 
He is superior over physical ailments, no matter how long those ailments have, have afflicted a person. He is superior to the Jewish religious leaders who do not recognize God's power when it walks in front of them in flesh and blood. And he is superior to the Old Testament law, not in a way that denigrates the law, but in a way that fulfills it. At each step, this passage proclaims the superiority of Jesus Christ. And that summary gives us our direction for this morning. It's one thing to summarize a passage in a word. It's another thing entirely to linger over a text and to soak in the superiority of Christ. And that's what we want to do this morning. We don't ever want to be content with a survey of the Bible. We want the full feast of what it means that Jesus is superior. And so that's where we're headed today. Four points on the superiority of Jesus Christ. Before we get to that exposition, we need to take a few minutes here at the outset and address some questions of context. I want to answer these questions at the outset so that you can spend the rest of our time listening attentively to everything else we're going to say. There are two questions in, in particular related to the context that we need to answer. The first one is, what is going on in John 5 as a whole? And the second is, what happened to verse 4? So let's zoom out and start with the broad question first. What is going on in John chapter 5 as a whole? Chapter 5 is a transition point in the Gospel of John. You can see in verse 1 that Jesus is back in Jerusalem for one of the annual Jewish feasts. We don't know which feast it is, but the specifics don't matter that much here. The point is that conflict erupts at this feast. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders demand an explanation of him. And this begins a pattern that will repeat over the next several chapters. John 6, 4, John 7, 2, and John 10, 22. Each time Jesus goes to a feast and each time the religious leaders get mad at him, conflict erupts. It's an emerging pattern. What is happening in that moment, in those conflicts? Jesus is revealing his superiority over the Jewish religious establishment. Everything in the Old Testament has to be understood in light of Jesus, not the other way around. You don't understand Jesus by understanding the Sabbath. You understand the Sabbath by looking at Jesus. And his, he's superior to the religious system of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Of course, they don't see that superiority. They're blind to it. And therefore, each conflict... Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 10, each conflict is bringing the, the cross one step closer to Jesus. I mean, you hear it in this passage. Look at verse 18, the very end. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So in the big picture, John chapter 5 is a turning point. The opposition to Jesus is going to escalate to this point. It's going to escalate all the way until they kill him. The second question of context zooms in and asks, what happened to verse 4? <laughs> if you have an English Standard Version, which is what I'm preaching from, then you will notice that the text goes from verse 3 to verse 5. If you have 
a New American Standard, at least the 2020 update, or an NIV, or a Christian Standard Bible, it's the same thing. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5, and verse 4 is in a footnote at the bottom of the page. You see that? So what's going on here? What happened to verse 4? Well, it's good to remember... It's good to remember that we don't have the original copies of Scripture. Instead, we have thousands of manuscripts and copies that date far back into history. There are more ancient copies of the Bible than any other work in history. So in order to get our English translations, what we do is we compare all of those manuscripts with one another in order to reliably establish what the authors originally wrote. When we do that for John chapter 5, when we compare all of the manuscripts together, the oldest and best manuscripts do not include verse 4. Later manuscripts include verse 4, but the earliest ones do not. For that reason, the scholars who translate our English Bibles include verse 4 as a footnote rather than put it in the text. That's what happened to verse 4. Now, I'm sure that someone is thinking right now, wait a second. Doesn't that question the reliability of the Bible? I understand that question, but in reality, the opposite is the case. Follow me here. The opposite is the case. Because we have so many ancient copies of Scripture we can have supreme confidence in establishing what the authors of the Bible wrote. It's an amazing act of God's providence in reality that God would preserve his word by providing so many copies of it down through the ages. This is really key, friends. The overwhelming number of manuscripts makes the corruption of the Bible a statistical impossibility. Because of God's providence in history, we can confidently trust that what we hold in our hands is the very word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded for us by the prophets and the apostles. And I want you to embrace that confidence this morning. The reason why we're addressing this question so directly up front is that I don't want anyone to leave today with a question or a doubt regarding the Bible. I want you to leave today with the confidence that the Bible is the reliable, attested, preserved, and confirmed Word of God. It does not merely contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God. Reliable, attested, preserved, and confirmed. You can bank your life on the Scriptures because God has preserved it for you and for me and for his church down through the ages. That's what happened to verse 4. And I hope that it increases your confidence in the scriptures. So, with those questions of context out of view, we can now all be attentive to the rest of the sermon. We're going to think about four points of Jesus' superiority from John chapter 5. First, in verses 1 to 6, we see Jesus' superior compassion. Jesus' superior compassion. We've already noted the setting for the encounter in verse 1. Jesus is in Jerusalem at a Jewish festival. 
But rather than describe the festival, John paints a sad picture of human suffering. You see it there in verses 2 and 3. Near the Sheep Gate, which is just north of the temple complex, John describes a pool. It's two pools, in fact, that are separated by a rock wall and surrounded by a series of covered porches. You can see the remains of this in Jerusalem today. But the layout is not as significant as the occupants. John tells us that a multitude of disabled people lie around the edges of the pool, blind, lame, paralyzed. That's a sad picture, isn't it? These are people made in the image of God, experiencing the brokenness of a fallen world in their physical bodies. It's hard for me to envision the setting. That's not because I can't imagine it, it's because I can. It's hard to take in a multitude of people, don't breeze past it, a multitude of people all made in the image of God, all suffering endlessly. It's heartbreaking. But the picture gets a little more difficult. Why are these disabled image bearers lying around the edge of this particular pool? Well, if you look down at verse 7, you can see why. You see the man's testimony in verse 7. They believe the waters have healing power. Desperate. They lie around this pool waiting for the water to be stirred up, thinking that it will heal them. But even then, the water is not universally healing. Only the first person to get into the pool gets to be healed. So try to imagine the commotion. Let's say that the wind blows through those porticos and it stirs up the water, and now you have a rush of blind, lame, crippled, and sick people falling all over each other, desperately trying to get into the supposedly magic water. That's sad. It's a tragedy. Do you, do you see the tragedy there? These suffering people are trapped in a cycle of superstition. I don't say that to denigrate these poor people in verse 3. I say it to point out the desperation. The hopelessness that attended their situation. Every moment of every day, their physical bodies are telling them that the world is broken, that sin has decimated everything in God's world, and yet there's no one to help them. The best that they can be offered is this superstitious belief that, well, if you can race that next guy into the water, then, then maybe you'll get healed. And into this sad scene, John introduces us to one particular invalid. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Some scholars estimate that life expectancy in Jesus' day was just a little bit more than 40. So this disabled man is an unusual case. He has been disabled for 38 years, so probably most of his life. We don't know if the man came to the pool every day or just most days, but we can be sure that his 38 years have been full of suffering and disappointment, and he's desperate, so desperate he's going to lay by this pool that supposedly can heal him. Suddenly, though, with no other explanation and no initiative from the disabled man, suddenly Jesus intervenes. Verse 6, 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? How does Jesus know the man has been there for so long? John doesn't tell us. Perhaps Jesus heard about the man from other people, or perhaps Jesus with divine insight just knows the man's condition. Whatever the reason, Jesus moves toward the man. Jesus initiates the encounter. That's what should stand out to you in verse 6. It's the compassion of Jesus that initiates with a man who can't help himself. Jesus is moved by a sense of pity that leads him to act. He initiates. Even Jesus' question is compassionate. Do you want to be healed? In John's gospel, Jesus often asks questions that serve as offers. If you would have known who's speaking to you, you would have asked me for living water, he says to the Samaritan woman. Same thing with this guy. Do you want to be healed? It's the same thing as saying, I will heal you. The question is not intended to be harsh. He's not trying to belittle the man's condition. The question is designed to draw the man out. The question is designed to get the man from, to keep him from focusing on the water and instead to focus on Jesus. That's why Jesus initiates this encounter so that the, the disabled man who's in a desperate condition will focus where he ought to focus, which is on Jesus. And I want to stress this a little bit more before we move on. This is, this is important for how we read the Bible. I've been in some discussions of this passage where all of the emphasis ends up on the disabled man. Why did Jesus pick this invalid and not another one? What was it about this guy that drew Jesus' attention rather than all of the other people? And I get those kind of questions. It's the spirit of our age to attempt to get into the psychology of a situation and sometimes that, 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 that spirit seeps into our Bible study and we miss the main point. The reality is, is that if we focus too much on the disabled man, then what we miss is Jesus. The only detail we know about the man for sure is that he suffered for 38 years. We can't get any deeper into the psychology of the moment. We can't get into the disabled man's mind. But what we can do is see Jesus, the compassionate one who initiates with those who can't help themselves. We can see Jesus who, unlike so many other people, doesn't leave image bearers to suffer under false pretenses and superstitious hopes of salvation. Jesus has compassion even on those whom the world would be content to leave on the sidelines. One of my favorite passages in the Bible about Jesus comes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 42. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I love that passage because it reminds me that Jesus is compassionate. It reminds me that Jesus knows our frame. He sees our condition. He knows our frailty. He sees our desperation. And he doesn't leave us there. Jesus pulls up to the stoplight of, man, of mankind's hopeless situation. And he looks to the side and he sees us begging. And he doesn't do this. So that he doesn't have to look at us. Which is what I do. 
You see what I'm saying here? A bruised reed he will not break. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows our condition. He knows that we can't help ourselves. And still, Jesus does not leave us as we are. That's the takeaway from verses 1 to 6 in John 5. What should grab your attention and what should elicit your worship is the superior compassion of Jesus. That takes us right into point number two on Jesus' superiority. In verses 7 to 9, we see Jesus' superior power. First his superior compassion, now his superior power. Despite Jesus' question, the disabled man in verse 7 appears less than understanding. Notice how he focuses on everything other than Jesus. Verse 7. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Where is the, where is the man's hope? In the water. And what is the condition of the man's spirit as he waits to reach the water? What's the condition of his, of his, of his heart, of his spirit? Grouchy, to put it plainly. He's quick to complain. And, and we understand why. He's been there for a long time. But I'll argue this is part of John's point. The man almost completely ignores Jesus' question. Instead of slowing down to consider what Jesus might mean, the, the disabled man just pours out his frustration. He vents. He doesn't answer the question. His frustrations get the better of him, and he misses the compassion of Jesus. I don't say that to write the man off. I say that to set up what happens next. Everything in the scene, including the man's attitude, has been leading up to verse 8. Listen again. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. I believe in simplicity when it comes to studying the Bible. Here's the simple observation. What should stand out to you in this verse is the power of Jesus' word. With only his word, Jesus heals the disabled man. Without the man's understanding and without the man's cooperation, Jesus powerfully overcomes his disability and Jesus restores the man to wholeness. Only his word, the man is healed. Let's press this a little bit further. Think about the means of Jesus' power. In the context of the scene, in the context of the scene, it is significant that Jesus makes use of nothing other than his word. The pool was believed to provide healing. Jesus pays no attention to the pool. He doesn't go over and get a handful of water and drop it on the man's head. He doesn't use anything but his word. What's more, there are no qualifications on Jesus' word. His word is not contingent on who can raise their hand first and say, ooh, me, ooh, me. He just heals him with his word. The healing is not even contingent on the disabled man's willingness to respond to Jesus. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And the man complains. And Jesus says, well, scratch that, get up. And he's healed with nothing other than his word. Jesus powerfully restores the man to wholeness. The means of the healing demonstrate his power. It's only his word. We should think also about the extent of Jesus' 
power. The healing completely restores the man's health. Jesus gives three commands in verse 8. And each command speaks to the completeness of the, of the, uh, of the healing. Three commands. Get up, Jesus says. And the man gets up, demonstrating that the disability is gone. Pick up your bed, Jesus says. And the man picks it up, demonstrating that his strength is restored. Walk, Jesus says. And the man walks, demonstrating the return of his normal function. Do you see the completeness? Friends, the thoroughness, the totality of the healing, not one area of brokenness is left undone, unfixed. This is the power of Jesus' word. Nearly four decades of broken suffering resolved in a moment, in an instant. And it all happened through the power of Jesus' word. What are we witnessing then in the healing of this disabled man? We are witnessing the revelation of Jesus' identity. Just as God spoke life in the beginning, so also Jesus speaks life into this broken man's body. Only one being, person in the Bible can accomplish things only with his word. That's God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's speaking life into the broken man's body. This is why the end of verse 9 is so significant. When did Jesus accomplish this healing? On the Sabbath, John tells us. What was the Sabbath intended to promote among God's people? Rest, leading to wholeness. Why did they rest on the seventh day? In the pursuit of wholeness. And that's what Jesus has done. He has restored this man to wholeness. In a sense then, this particular healing on this particular day is Jesus' identity and mission in microcosm. On the Sabbath, restoring a man. As the word made flesh, he has come to restore what was broken and devastated by sin. Jesus' superior power reveals who he is. That connection with the Sabbath leads us into point number three. This is where the trouble begins. Verse 10 and following, we see Jesus' superior purpose. His compassion, his power, now Jesus' superior purpose. The religious leaders question the healed man. Look again at the text, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's an exercise in missing the point. Technically, the man is not breaking the law regarding the Sabbath. There are no Old Testament prohibitions that would keep the man from carrying his bed. But the man is breaking the rabbinic tradition that developed around the Sabbath. He is breaking the religious, uh, the religious leader's rules, to say it a different way. And that's why they're questioning him, because they see him as a threat to their authority. That sounds somewhat petty to us, and that's because it is. But let's grant for a moment, let's, let's assume that the religious leaders have the right motive. Let, let's, assume, let's assume that they truly want to honor 
the Sabbath and that they want to protect the people of God from violating God's law. Let's, uh, let's grant that assumption for just a moment. Do you know what is still tragic about their complaint? The blindness the complete inability to see the power of God on display in this man's life. Think about it. This man's life is a picture of the Sabbath fulfilled. He's been restored to wholeness. His life has been freed from brokenness. He can rest, to use the Sabbath's language, from striving after healing. The man is not breaking the Sabbath. His life pictures the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And the religious leaders can't see it. They're steeped in God's word and they're missing the point. They're blind to the power of God in their midst. That's the tragedy. And so this line of questioning unfolds. We can follow it pretty quickly in the text. They begin this interrogation. Verse 10, they accuse the man of breaking the law. Verse 11, the man shifts the heat away from himself to Jesus. So verse 12, the religious leaders ask, well, who is that man? Verse 13, the healed man doesn't know. Jesus has already withdrawn. Now notice in that line of questioning that no one stops to point out the obvious, that an invalid of 38 years is now walking around carrying a bed. Notice that no one stops to rejoice in the power of God displayed in the restoration of one of his image bearers. It's just like what the Apostle John wrote in chapter 1. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Jesus, however, has a different purpose for the healed man. The religious leaders want to trap the, the healed man. Jesus wants to teach him to direct his life in a God-honoring direction. Notice verse 14, where we see Jesus' purpose. 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We need to think carefully here so that we don't misunderstand Jesus' point. Ultimately, what does Jesus call this man to do? He calls him to live a holy life. That's what Jesus means when he says, sin no more. He's calling the man to holiness. In fact, this is the entire reason for the healing. Jesus powerfully healed the man so that he would use his life for something greater. The honor of God through holy living. The magnifying of God's mercy through godliness. In that sense, Jesus' compassion that we spoke about in point number one, Jesus' compassion always had a deeper goal. His compassion was for the purpose of holiness. Right? He's slow to anger so that his people will turn from sin and follow him with righteousness. Jesus was moved with pity so that the man would live with godliness. Holiness, then, was Jesus' purpose for this man. Now, does this mean that the man's disability was caused by his sin? Is Jesus saying, follow me, is Jesus saying sin no more because sin had gotten the man into this condition in the first place? John doesn't tell us explicitly, but there are a few 
biblical parameters that we ought to keep in view here. In the big picture, all human suffering is the result of sin. All of it. We live in a fallen world, and the fallenness of this world often shows up in illness, disability, and physical suffering. What's more, sin does have physical consequences in our body. Some kinds of sin affect our health. We, we think of substance abuse, for example. Or we think about the fact that some, some acts of sin are just foolishness put into action that can lead to physical disability. What's more, the Bible does teach that God disciplines those whom he loves and that at times God's discipline may be experienced physically in our person. 1 Corinthians 11, for example The church at Corinth was misusing the Lord's Supper, and Paul says, this is why many of you are weak and ill. It was God's discipline on his church. Those are the biblical parameters that have to guide our thinking. We live in a fallen world. Sin does have physical consequences at times, and God disciplines those whom he loves. But... But we need to be cautious, please hear me on this, we need to be cautious about ever assigning some specific physical ailment to a specific or direct action of God. We do not have access to the mind of God in such things. And so we ought to be very careful about ever saying that a specific physical ailment has been caused by sin. That's God's prerogative, not ours. We also need to be very careful that we never impugn the character of God in these discussions. God is not the author of evil. All that God does is good and just. His ways are inscrutable. They are beyond our knowing. But his ways are always right. Rather than question God or assume that we know his mind or try to supplant him with our own analysis, these kinds of situations, physical suffering, physical disability, illness, these kinds of situations call us to trust God. This this is ultimately the conclusion that we come to as we think about physical illness and disability and sin. Every physical ailment or disability is ultimately an opportunity to walk by faith in the goodness of God, regardless of the situation. So back to John chapter 5. Was this man's disability caused by sin? We, We can't answer that with certainty. But we don't have to, friends, because that's not the purpose of the of the passage. That's not the purpose of the healing. The purpose of the healing is holiness. Jesus healed the man so that the man will use his restored life to honor God. This is why Jesus tells him, sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. Do you know what's worse than physical disability? The judgment of God. Do you know what's worse than suffering 38 years with a broken body? Suffering eternally. 
separated from God. That's Jesus' point. The healing was only the means, not the end. The end was for the man to orient his life towards God, to live with holiness that honors God and that honors God as the one who has restored him. So the religious leaders want to argue with the man because they see this as a threat to their own authority. Jesus' purpose is superior. He wants the man to reckon with God, to be restored physically and spiritually. Jesus has a superior purpose. And just before we, we move on, friends, I, I want to point out to you that this is actually Jesus' purpose every time that he acts in a person's life, whether it be my life or yours, he wants us to reckon with God. His purpose is always our holiness. He acts with power, meeting needs, and answering prayer so that we will live with godliness. The purpose of Jesus intervening in the life of his people is to lead us away from sin and towards godliness so that we will be more like Christ. Friends, if you're a Christian today, is that how you respond to Jesus' work in your life with a renewed focus on holiness? When he answers a prayer or when he meets a legitimate need in your life, do you respond with godliness? With going deeper in the pursuit of pleasing God with your life. That's always the purpose for his acting in your life with power is so that you will reckon with God and live a holy life. This is how we display Jesus' superiority, by using our redeemed and restored lives to magnify his mercy through holiness. That's Jesus' purpose. Let's go back now to the religious leaders and Jesus. Verse 15 tells us that the healed man reported Jesus to the authorities. He told on him. We don't know the man's motive for doing this, but the result is that the controversy now centers on Jesus. But even here, we see Jesus' superiority. This is our fourth and final observation from verses 16 to 18, Jesus' superior position. His superior position. In verse 16, John describes rising opposition to Jesus. Look at verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders see Jesus as a lawbreaker. That becomes clear in verse 18, which we'll consider in just a moment. They think Jesus breaks the law, the Old Testament law, and now he's leading other people to break the law as well. Of course, this is not true. The charge doesn't stick. Jesus has not broken any biblical commands regarding the Sabbath. But strikingly, Jesus does not defend himself on the basis of Scripture. Did you notice that? He doesn't defend himself on the basis of the Bible. This is not like the Sabbath controversies in Matthew or Mark, where Jesus cites an Old Testament passage in order to defend himself. Here in John 5, Jesus makes another argument, a different argument that cuts right to the heart of the issue. Look at Jesus' response, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father 
is working until now, and I am working. Jesus could argue that the healing of the man fulfills the purpose of the Sabbath. He could also argue that healing the man does not constitute work. Those are biblical arguments rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus could say that. But instead, Jesus claims that he's simply doing what God the Father does. According to Genesis 2, God rested on the seventh day from all of his work at creation. And that was the foundation for the later commandment to honor the Sabbath. But the rest of the Old Testament makes clear that God is always at work. Upholding the universe, governing his creation, sustaining the world... Psalm 121 is a good example. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. So God, by virtue of his godness, never rests. He's never not working. He never rests. He's always working, for he is God. And in doing this, God does not break the Sabbath, for the Sabbath belongs to God. He created the world, he established the Sabbath, and therefore both this world and the Sabbath are God's to do with as he pleases. Because of who he is, God is always working and he's right to do so, because he's God. And that's the crux of Jesus' argument. God the Father is working on the Sabbath, and therefore Jesus works on the Sabbath. You can see the implication My father is working, so I am working. Like father, like son. Jesus puts himself in the position of God. Jesus puts himself in the place of Almighty. He doesn't even debate with the religious leaders over who interprets the Bible rightly. He just says, you're wrong because I'm God. I do what I do, Jesus says, because of who I am. The creation belongs to Jesus. The Sabbath belongs to Jesus. And his works, including this healing, now testify to the good news that God's rest is not found merely in a commandment, but God's rest is found in this man, Jesus, the Word made flesh. The religious leaders think they are protecting the Sabbath. What they fail to see is that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, for Jesus is God. And so verse 18, verse 18 is the rest of John's gospel in one verse. Look again at the tragic rejection of Israel's Messiah, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. The irony here is that the religious leaders understand what Jesus is saying. That they follow his argument. They understand that he is claiming to be God, and yet they do not believe. The problem with humanity, friends, is not a lack of evidence. They understand Jesus. The problem is hearts that are dead in sin, and eyes that are blinded by the evil one, just like we read in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what John means when he says, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. They see, but they can't see. That's where we have to leave the chapter for now. 
we'll come back next week, Lord willing, to see exactly how Jesus relates to God the Father. The next series of verses explain how the Son relates to and works with the Father. But for now, this is where we will end. We will end where we started with the superiority of Jesus. He is superior to superstitious, desperate hopes that can't save. He is superior over the effects of sin in a fallen world. He's superior over blind human hearts that can't see the power of God standing in front of them in flesh and blood. And he's superior to the Old Testament law, not in a way that denigrates it, but in a way that fulfills it. And so, our response to him this morning ought to be threefold. Faith, trusting that Jesus restores us to God. Holiness, pursuing godliness in submission to him. And worship, affirming with our lives that he is truly superior to all things. May it be so among us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. We know the condition of our own hearts that we too are blind often. Or we were blind, Father, in our unbelief. And you have spared us from such a fate. We pray now that our eyes would see evermore the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we would see him and in seeing him we would be made like him. With our lives conformed to his. Our character displaying his. Our love only for him. Father, please do this work among us. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we pray now, God, for the fruit-bearing work of the Holy Spirit. That he would take the word of God and he would implant it in our hearts and minds. And that it would bear fruit in faith, in holiness, and in worship. We pray this, Father, confident that you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, please stand and let's respond to the preaching of God's word in praise. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved.